If you are just getting started with the NGSS and 3D teaching, I want to invite you to check out Bring Wonder Back, an on-demand video series designed to help you understand why moving through the textbook and teaching topics is actually crushing your students' curiosity and what you can do instead. It's going to help you shift the work of learning where it belongs by building your understanding of explorations and discovery-based teaching practices. And finally, I'm going to help you take the first steps toward transforming your students into scientists through 3D learning, which is really what the NGS is all about. You can access this video series at iExploreScience/wonder and get ready to bring wonder engagement and a love for learning back to your science class. All right, to the show. Welcome to the Teaching Science in 3D podcast. I'm Erin Sadler from Sadler Science. And I'm Nicole Van Tassel with iExplore Science. We're here to cut through the confusion to help science teachers like you make science relevant and engaging with student-driven instruction. We know that when students take ownership of their learning, teaching can be simple and fun. Thanks for being here and let's dive into the episode. Hey there, this is Nicole Van Tassel with iExplore Science, and before we dive into this episode, I want to invite you to check out the Spark subscription, which is opening enrollment very soon for the next monthly Spark. You can check out all of the details at iExplorScience slash Spark, but here's the gist. We know that the best learning happens when your students are engaged, and that learning doesn't look the same for every student. So our curriculum shouldn't look the same for every student. But how do you balance meeting the needs of all of your students and really giving them a personalized learning journey and moving away from that one-size-fits-all curriculum with not totally burning yourself out in the process. That's what the Spark subscription is about. It provides you with the tools and the learning to create truly student-driven storylines so that you can go beyond creating the illusion of student-driven and student ownership and truly embrace a classroom where your students are driving the bus and moving their learning forward and doing more work than you. Again, you can check out the Spark subscription at iExploreScience.com Spark. All right, into the episode we go. Hey guys, Nicole Van Tassel here with iExplore Science, and today's episode is actually a recording from a pop-up training I did last week inside the Spark Student-Driven Science Learning Facebook group. Um, it really built on what Erin and I talked about last week about um, not building background knowledge, so I'm going to share with you three things I keep in mind when I am beginning my phenomenon-based learning units or my phenomenon-based learning storylines. Okay, let's dive into the episode. Hi guys, this is Nicole Van Tassel, and today we are going to be talking about do's and don'ts and how do we begin a phenomenon-based unit. So when I first started teaching, I did what what I had experienced in the classroom. I was, okay, it is working. I was um, using, I was building background, you know, like this is what my students need to know. And I was building that knowledge. I was teaching vocabulary before we even started. And I threw this out there because I totally did this. I was having students make cover pages, um, decorate their notebooks and get ready for, uh, for whatever we were learning. And there was some value in, you know, it was, it was an art project, but there was some value in that. We were looking at prior knowledge, trying to make those connections, but it probably wasn't the most effective way to do that. So Today, we're going to be talking about some do's and don'ts 
phenomenon-based unit. Or like, what should we do and not do when beginning a unit? All right, so here's just your quick notes. If this, don't spend your time building background knowledge or teaching vocabulary. Do engage your students in questioning and do consider engaging your students in modeling activities. And we're gonna look closer at questioning and modeling and what that looks like and how you can go about doing that in your classroom as well. So this is one of the mistakes that I see a lot. Erin and I were actually just talking about this on the Teaching Science in 3D podcast. Um, I think it came out last week or it's coming out next week. One, two, we are diving into building background knowledge and why we shouldn't do that. But I see it all the time, even from teachers who are embracing a three-dimensional approach. They say things like, before we get into this phenomenon, I need to explain. Or, you know, my students need to know X, Y, Z before I can start this unit. But the thing is, you're missing the point. Because there are supposed to be things that students don't know. And I know those things they don't know might not be the things you want them not to know. Like, again, background knowledge, you're saying, but that's not my objective. And it's okay that it's not your objective. And it's okay that you maybe aren't going to spend the same time teaching that background knowledge or teaching it in the same way as you're going to um, spend the time and focus on teaching what you're actually targeting. But either way, before the unit begins is not the time to address the background knowledge. At the beginning of the unit, you want questions. Any kinds of questions, even if it's not your targeted content, even if it's stuff you believe your students should have learned in a previous year, it's okay. You don't need to build that background because when you're using a storyline approach and you're using a phenomenon-based learning approach, as your students realize that there are things they are missing, there are, there are understandings that just are not making sense, that's when they are triggered to then go out and find the answers and go out and seek that information. And that's the flow of a storyline and that's the flow of active, engaged learning. So for example, I've been working on the October Curiosity Spark for the Spark subscription, and it's all about the Earth-Sun-Moon system and gravity and the solar system and all of that. And like, obviously, I know there's the connection between gravity and mass, and that's something I know, right? And so I had seen this phenomenon of weights on different planets, or actually like jumping height on different planets. And we're using this as an investigative phenomenon to flow into the solar system after we wrap up kind of, um, or at least what I envision, um, but as a, a, an entry point into the solar system, scale, um, properties, all of that. So we're using this investigative phenomenon, and actually thank you for to Mercedes, if you are listening and watching this, for sharing that investigative phenomenon with me. Um, but... We're using that as our investigation, or our, again, investigative phenomenon, lower level phenomenon. And as I was watching this video like more closely now, because again, I'm using it now, I noticed that the jumping height on Uranus, your, I don't know how you say that planet, to be honest, um, was basically the same as Earth. And I was like, wait, that doesn't make sense. How can that be? Because that is a gas giant like Jupiter. I know it's not as big as Jupiter, but I know your weight and how high you can jump on Jupiter would be much lower than Earth. So I would have expected that it would be the same for Saturn and Uranus. But it wasn't. It was only 
a, it was like rest. Well, Saturn was, uh, you could jump a little bit, like you could not jump as high. So you weighed more and Uranus, you actually could jump higher and you weighed less. And I was like, how does that make sense? I don't understand. And that led me to investigate more. So it's not just the mass, it's the distance from the center too. And again, I knew the connection distance as well in my head, but I did not realize that, you know, the density of the planet and the distance from like, it's like basically its diameter to like, you know, its radius, whatever, basically made it so that the the gravitational pool was less on this gas giant than it was on Earth. So it, it in identifying that something didn't make sense to me or that I was missing that background knowledge, I was driven to learn more, to uncover more. And honestly, I didn't know that Uranus was like the least, one of the least dense planets in our solar system. Saturn is, is the least dense. Uranus is the, the second least dense. Um, I had no idea about that. I thought it was really just about the size of it. And, you know, because Jupiter is enormous and I know you'd weigh a lot on Jupiter. So I I realized I was missing a new piece, a piece of the puzzle, and I had to go seek out that information. And now I have a way better understanding of that. And I'm for sure going to remember that as compared to if someone had just like told me. If someone had just told me that. Who, who knows? Someone may have told me that. I would have been like, ah, okay, that's cool, whatever. And I would have categorized it or cataloged that information with the same way I did Jupiter. Like, oh, it's big. It weighs, you know, it's, you'd have a lot of um, gravitational attraction. You would weigh more on that planet. But in reality, that wasn't true. For our students, it's the same thing. By building background knowledge, we're actually reducing their opportunities for curiosity and for intrinsic drive to motivate their learning, to push them to understand. So the big thing here is just don't build that background knowledge. Let it unfold as students drive their own learning forward. You still can teach that stuff. I'm not saying you don't ever address it, but you do not want to do it before you even begin the unit. You're going to lose their engagement. You're, um, you're you're setting yourself up to really have to drag students through the units, like I had mentioned was my experience. Um, and, and it's just not the way that we want to start our phenomenon-based learning units and our student-driven science units. We want to, it to be a truly student-driven experience. Same goes for vocabulary too, but that's a, a video for a different day. So we're going to save conversations about vocabulary for next time. Okay, so what do we do instead? We question. Okay, I think I'm missing a, oh no, I'm not missing a slide. Okay, so we question first. And the flow of that, the flow of questioning, because I know I'm, I'm, we always say, you know, start your units with student questions. But that doesn't always give you the answer of like, okay, but like how, right? It's not as maybe practical. So how do we do that? So the flow is basically first we observe, then we question, and then we prioritize. And this is what sets us up to succeed in a student-driven unit. And this is what allows you to shift that ownership to your students. By observing, that leads to our questions. And then our questions rise so that we can get our students to our objectives, but do it in authentically student-driven. 
So if you have a clear anchor experience and a target, you know, explaining XYZ phenomenon is your target. It is communicated to students through the anchor experience. Prioritizing can really be done pretty easily by asking students like, what question or maybe group of questions will help us get us one step closer? You don't need the whole roadmap when you're getting started. You just need the next step. Um, really quick, observe. Let's talk about a quick strategy. I mean, notice and wonder is one of the best ways to go from observations to questions. Really pushing your students to make observations and going deeper. Not, not accepting one or two observations, but really pushing them to make um, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten observations. It's a struggle to do that oftentimes, but that's when you really start to dig in and they start to think about connections and think about a lot of those cross-cutting concepts like patterns and the scale and functions and, and all of those things that we want to incorporate. When we to like keep observing, to go further with their observations, that's when we get those really deep um the deeper noticings that are going to set us up to make really ask really good questions. And then again, you just let your students ask questions. There's an amazing book called just, I think it's called just one thing. Um, and it's like, if you change just one thing in your classroom, change what you're doing with student questions. And their strategy is to set students up with some kind of prompt. So that would be our phenomenon. And then just give them time, list every single question. And they have a clear, um, like steps you follow um, and rules you follow. You only ask questions. You do not judge questions. You do not provide feedback on questions. Uh, students do follow these same rules. So during the questioning process, they're not, they're just writing all of their questions or saying all of their questions aloud in small groups and someone else is writing it or um, an app is, is picking up the text or whatever, um, like talk to text, you know. And Students are only saying questions. It's kind of like that game that Drew Carey used to be on where you could only talk in questions. Um, but you're not allowed to, like, ask judge. You're not allowed to, like, reflect on the question or judge the question or anything like that. It's literally just go. And you come up with a big, long list of questions. And then afterward is when you start to prioritize and evaluate the questions. So you have your observations. You come up with a bunch of questions. Uh, and then you get to prioritizing them. As an aside, we will do some additional work and posts um, on helping your students ask questions and strategies to get your students into asking questions. There's resources on the podcast. We'll do some resources here in the Facebook group. Um, but those are a couple of things for observe and question. But now you get to prioritize. And this is where we can we have the opportunity to really take those questions and make our unit student-driven or student-led. In the past, I would have said, you look at those questions as the teacher and you decide where to go. But we really want to start putting that ownership onto our students and having our students figure out where to go. So this is where the prioritization comes in. Uh, one strategy you can do is to first have students start grouping questions. Because sometimes you have a, a lot of questions, right? And you need some way to organize or narrow them down. So that's where we start to create groups of questions and honestly, I would just leave it open-ended and ask your students to just create some groups. What questions are similar? Maybe some questions are repeated. Maybe um, these questions ask the same thing, but they use different words so we could combine them. Uh, but you can have students really group their questions, narrow them down in that sense. You can start eliminating questions that maybe do not tie as well to your goal, which is explaining your phenomenon. If you've 
crafted a great anchor experience, your students know what they're what they're going to do or what they need to do throughout the learning. And so they can say, this is an interesting question, but it's not going to help us answer that. So I can put it to the side. I can eliminate it at least for the moment. Maybe I can investigate it another time. But you can have students group it and then again, prioritize. Figuring out what is the very what is the, the next step? What is the first thing I need to do? And sometimes it's those lower level questions where they realize this is the background knowledge I'm missing. I need to figure this thing out before I can move on to the next the next thing. But really, it's just identifying that very next step and the next step and the next exploration exploration and the next learning experience is going to set students up for this the subsequent step. So again, that is what a storyline is, right? So it's just a matter of prioritizing what do we need to do right now? What question do we need to answer first? And your students are capable of this. Now, if you want, if, if your students do, sometimes they might want to start like in the middle. Like maybe they want to dive into an area that you, you who are a master of the content know we're going to get like two seconds into this activity and they're going to be totally lost because they did not have this background knowledge. That is when you can step in as a guide and you don't have to say, no, we cannot do that. But you could ask questions like, do we fully understand that question? Are there any terms or ideas in here we're not sure of? What do you think we might need to know first to answer that? And you might be able to redirect them into an activity um, or into or toward another question that would be maybe a better starting point. Um, you know, like if students ask like what's inside of cells and they don't even know what a cell is, asking a question like do we fully understand that question or are there any terms we're not sure of, they might recognize I don't even know what a cell is actually so maybe we should start there. So you can guide your students through your own questions and through your own observations and this is a great opportunity for your students to really reflect and it's like a metacognitive skill where they're, where they're starting to identify when they don't know something. And that's something that we do need to learn to do. And it's something that oftentimes we glaze over as humans. I know a lot of times I will be reading a, a book or a novel and there might be a word that or a, a, a thing, you know, that I am not familiar with. And I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what it does. I don't know what that word means. But because of context clues, I understand the gist of the paragraph. But then someone were to, if someone were to ask, well, what does that mean? I would be like, I have no idea. And if we don't pause and maybe really think about our thinking and think about what we're reading or what we're talking about or what we're looking at, we don't always recognize that. So you can be that like person who's asking, well, what does that really mean? Are you sure you know? Um, should we answer? Should we figure that out first? And you can guide them to maybe to a better starting point if they want to like dive right into the deep end and and you as the educator know like I think there's a little bit more that we need to do before we before we go into that go on to that pathway. And again, it's it's really a give and take. We you are the guide, you are the educator, but we do want to start pushing more of this responsibility to our students and equipping them with the capacity to become um, just learners, like that they could go off and carry out an investigation of their own and figure it out on their own and identify their own learning journey on their own, right? But we, our students are not used to that, so we need to do that in baby steps. So that's something to keep in mind. Okay, so you have your observations, your questions, your prioritization, you you know, you know where you're going. What is one additional thing? 
So one other thing that I like to do with the is modeling. And I said sometimes because it's not something that I would say is required at every in every single instance. It is something that is sometimes appropriate. So preliminary models or explanations are about explaining the phenomenon based on the student's current understanding. And sometimes the phenomenon or the content is something students are brand new to. They have very little prior knowledge of. They might not have any idea how to explain it. And that might be an instance where I'd say, maybe we skip the modeling right now. Maybe we come back when we've learned a little bit more and do some early modeling later in, um, or early in the unit, but a a little bit after the phenomenon. But oftentimes our students have experienced or they have some experience with a phenomenon, they have some experience with the content, they have some science ideas that they've learned in elementary school or maybe middle if you were in high school, and they are able to develop some preliminary explanations. And taking the time for students to think about, to to do this, to model, to develop their initial explanations can be really valuable because it's activates their prior knowledge. So they start to think about, what do I already know that connects to this? It also shows you what they know. And it can be something that you can return to and use as a formative assessment later as students revise and fix their models. So, okay, so modeling is appropriate sometimes, and especially modeling when they are, like, drawing out their ideas. Now, sometimes it doesn't fit, and so sometimes that focus is better to just discuss what students already know and maybe jot down some of these ideas, their experiences, talking about it. Um, That could maybe be a model depending on who you're talking to. I've had some good conversations about modeling uh, with some professors and things lately, and I think there are some areas, uh, well, there's people that have different interpretations of modeling, right? Okay. Um, But either way, whether you are having students draw out their ideas, which I think is really valuable, um, or write out their ideas, also really valuable. I I also believe having them talk out their ideas is super important as well. However, I would really encourage you to have them document it in some way so that they can come back to those ideas and reflect on them and revise them and improve them later on in the unit. But no matter what, we really do want to get kids thinking about how the phenomenon connects to things they already know and things they've experienced or things they've heard and how they can use those things to begin understanding the phenomenon. Even if it's totally wrong, it gives you an idea of what you're dealing with, where your students are starting, what misconceptions they might have, what beliefs they might have. Um, and it's, it's really insightful for both your students and you as the educator. So those are three things that I want to highlight about when you're starting a phenomenon-based unit or a phenomenon-driven unit, we want to skip the building background knowledge and we really want to let those questions come out during the questioning phase. And then you can spend some time answering those questions in the storyline as, again, as they arise. We do want to spend our time questioning. We want to have our students first observe, then develop questions, and then take it one step further to prioritize those questions to identify What's the first thing we need to figure out? What's our next step? And once you have that question, once your students have asked that question, um, then they are ready to, like, you know, our first step is to figure out 
Why is one thing living and one thing not living? Like, what is that about? Then you can step in with your exploration and help students figure that out, right? Um, and then we want to start having students think about what they already know. So before they start your activity or your exploration about what's living or not living, you have students talk about and explain that. Um, or you have students, again, not maybe not for that example, but for a different example, you have students draw something or create a, mod a model in that sense to, to explain the phenomenon that they had just observed in their anger experience. So those are three things that I'm doing to... Um, at, or I'm keeping in mind at the beginning of the unit, one thing I'm not doing, two things I am doing. I hope this has helped you uh, maybe rethink how you are starting your units and how you are setting yourself up for success in driving your student-driven your student -driven learning forward <laughs> or setting your students up to drive their learning forward. And if you have any questions, you can reach out. Remember, um, I, uh, the Spark subscription is a a membership, I guess, kind of a subscription for some student-driven science learning resources released monthly. Um, the Spark subscription will be opening again at the end of September in just like another week and a half. Um, and you can get in and access the resources from the previous months, which were August was Body Wars, Cells, Body Systems, all September, or I'm sorry, I messed that up. That was September. August was chemical kitchen, matter, properties of matter, chemical reactions, those sorts of topics. And then October is going to be that earth, sun, moon system, space, things like that. And you will have to wait and find out what November is going to be. But again, the Spark subscription is opening at the end of October, or at the end of September. If you have questions about it, reach out. Um, otherwise, I hope this has helped you as you are developing your own student-driven science storylines. Have a good one, guys. Making sure that your lessons are three-dimensional isn't always easy. While you don't need to include all three dimensions every single day, you do want to make sure that each dimension is regularly addressed. I developed a really simple 3D planner to help keep me focused. It helps me track which pieces I'm using in my daily lesson plans. It only takes me five minutes to fill out, and it helps me notice patterns in my own lesson planning. For example, when I first started using it, I noticed I wasn't including the cross-cutting concepts as often as I thought I was. Just by recognizing this, I was able to focus on this one piece and improve my lessons. Right now, you can grab the same template that I use for my own planning for free. Go to sadlerscience.com slash 3dplanner to grab yours. That's sadlerscience.com slash 3dplanner.